0: Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the Managing Editor of Providence. And today I am talking with Joshua Maservi, who is the Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, first off, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm pretty sure I just mispronounced your last name. Could you repronounce it for us?
1: Uh, No problem, Mark. First, thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, So my name is Joshua Maservi. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I I see the name in our email correspondence, but
0: again, hadn't pronounced it before. It's so. a tricky one. Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining us. And for listeners, we're going to talk today about the war that's been going on in Ethiopia with the DeGrayan people. And it's an issue that, you know, obviously Afghanistan has been in the news a lot. A lot of people haven't been talking about the DeGray war, but it is... Something we've run a couple of times in Providence that is of interest to people, Um, Ethiopia. I was uh, looking back at old articles that Providence had run. People were very optimistic about Ethiopia and its role in the region and the world. So a lot has changed in the past year or so. And so, Josh, my first question to kind of get us started off here today is, who are the Degraean people and how did this war start?
1: Mm. Yeah, the, the Tigrayans live in the very far north of Ethiopia. That's their homeland. There's a Tigray state, uh, which is one of the, the federal states of Ethiopia. They constitute, they're, they're a small minority of the country. They constitute maybe 4 to 6% of the country's population. So very small, but very powerful. Uh, they have dominated, until 2018, they had dominated The government for nearly thirty years in Ethiopia. That was a result of their leading uh, the rebellion against the regime. It was a called the Derg, a a Marxist regime that came to power in a coup that overthrew a very long line of emperors that had ruled the country. So the Tigrayans uh, led that rebellion, as I said. Uh, they did a lot of the fighting and dying, and so they had uh, a very proprietary uh, perspective on on the Ethiopian government after they overthrew this previous dictatorship. So for nearly thirty years, they dominated the government. As I said, they really privileged the Tigrayan people. Their uh, you know Tigrayan businessmen, for instance, benefited hugely from the Tigrayan reign the Tigrayan military, uh, senior positions, officer corps was heavily Tigrayan. All these other, all these other uh, hallmarks of a, uh, of a minority controlling a government and privileging its own people were, were very much in place. That changed in, in 2018 when a, a popular revolution, particularly spearheaded by the Aroma, which is the, the largest tribe in, in Ethiopia, Force the Tigrayan party to uh, allow the the current prime minister Abiy Ahmed, who's in Oromo, uh, to to come to power. And uh, I don't know how many details we wanted to get into here on on the politics of all this because it gets very uh, labyrinthine and, and Byzantine. But essentially, the Tigrayans never really accepted. Um, and and I shouldn't say the Tigrayans. I should say the TPLF, which is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is the political party that um, that represents the Tigrayans. Uh, the TPLF never really accepted their their loss of power. There was all sorts of ongoing tensions between the federal government um, and the uh, Tigray state until eventually. Uh, In November last year, the TPLF actually attacked the military base, a a federal military base in Tigray. Uh, The federal forces responded with an offensive into Tigray that was joined by um, militias from a neighboring state, Amhara, and which was also joined by the Eritreans, which is uh, Eritrea is a country to the north of Tigray. and, And the Eritrean army also came in to fight the Tigrayans. That is the, uh, a very quick thumbnail sketch of a, of a very complicated run-up to this war.
0: Originally, the Ethiopian forces were doing quite well, and they took the capital, uh, Mekele, and, or if I'm pronouncing that correct, you can correct me on that in a second. But, um, but then the Degradian forces were able to, or the TPLF, were able to route the Ethiopian forces out of the territory. So how were they able to do that?
1: It's a really interesting story. So from the very beginning of this conflict, people warned that it would be really difficult to score a decisive victory in Tigray. There's a whole host of reasons for that. One is that the TPLF has a lot of experience fighting insurgencies. I mentioned earlier that they led a rebel movement against a previous regime. So a lot of those officers are they're clearly older now and uh, not in their prime, perhaps, but they still are there and they still have that experience. The Tigrayans dominated the military and they're fighting on home soil. Uh, in, in addition to their Tigray was essentially a, a massive arsenal because not only was it a frontline state with Eritrea, with which Ethiopia fought a war from 19, starting in 1998. But again, the Tigrayans uh, dominated the military, and so they uh, sent a lot of material, military material, to Tigray. So uh, initially, yes, the federal forces did very well. They uh, knocked the Tigrayans back very quickly. The Eritreans were a big part of this as well. And what happened was that the TPLF was squeezed uh, in, in all directions, really. You know, the Amhara and the federal forces from the south, the Eritreans from the north. The only real outlet the Tigrayans had was Sudan, uh, and that is to their west. But Sudan closed that border. So they were really squeezed. However, eventually and uh, fairly quickly, actually, the Tigrayans were able to rally. Uh, I think there's a couple reasons here. One is that. I've already mentioned the Tigrayans dominated the Ethiopian military. So once they turned on the Ethiopian state, it really hollowed out the, the, the federal forces. They had lost a lot of their experienced officers, a lot of their officers, period, again, were Tigrayan. So that was one big problem. The other problem was all of these advantages I referenced earlier that the, that the Tigrayans had began to tell. They began to win out in in an insurgency like this. Uh, for those Klauserit fans out there, um, the center of gravity of an insurgency is the people themselves, and the Tigrayan people, even though they may not have. Total affection for the TPLF certainly did not want to be invaded by the Amhara militias, which is, a you know, there's a lot of ethnic tensions there, uh, historic ethnic tensions. The Amhara then annexed part of Western Tigray, which won them no friends at all in in Tigray, of course. Uh, And then the Eritreans were in there. And the Eritreans and the Tigrayans are are terrible enemies, uh, dating back to this border war that I referenced earlier. So what happened was essentially you had a mobilization of the Tigrayan people and it is extraordinarily difficult as the U.S. can sadly attest to win, fight and win an insurgency in um, a, a state or an area where you don't have the support of the people or you, don't, uh, or you only have a little bit of support from the people. All of these problems began to wear on, on the, the federal offensive. Ethiopia was already in, in difficult economic uh, straits before this war and fighting wars are very expensive. So they started to have uh, even more economic and financial troubles. So eventually what a lot of people predicted, uh, uh, myself included, uh, began to play out where the TPLF resurged. They retook uh, Mekele, as you mentioned, the the capital of Tigray state. And then they actually moved beyond Tigray and into Amhara, into Afar, which is another um, neighboring state, and uh, really made very rapid gains. uh, And almost virtually all of Tigray was mobilized at this point. And so there was no shortage at all of manpower, uh, even though it's, again, they're a small minority. Still, when you have the entire population mobilized behind you, that's very powerful. So uh, that's what we've seen. And uh, the TPLF knocked back uh, the offensive. And as I said, have already made inroads into some of the neighboring states. And here we are.
0: And part of those inroads, I believe they took the church site, uh, if I'm pronouncing Mm -hmm. it right, the uh, Lalibela? Lalibela, yeah. and so they've taken that. Do they still hold that?
1: As far as I know, it, it is difficult to get good, accurate, timely information out of this because that's true of all wars, of course. But uh, throughout this, there's has been a, a communications blackout uh, over thrown over Tigray State. So telecommunications were cut off. Journalists were not allowed in for a long time. A few have gotten in. Uh, so we do have information trickling out, but yes, as far as I know, they do still hold these ancient, very beautiful, uh, uh, rock, uh, they're, they're literally churches hewn into the rock. Um, they, they control these sites, they're major tourist destinations, uh, and they're a part of, of, uh, world's, uh, culture. I, I would even say they're, they're, um, they're that valuable. So. Yes, they they've taken some uh, strategic areas, uh, and then other areas that are important simply for the o- optics of of their of controlling them, like Lalibela.
0: And I bring that up because I know that some Providence contributors and readers are heaven of you know I know that they are familiar with those, and so mm-hmm. and uh, I mean if it ever the war stops, it would be a beautiful place to go visit, from what I can tell. Yes, and uh, so my. The next kind of question here is like, what's, what are the TPLF going to do now? Are they, last thing I heard before all the Afghanistan stuff took over the news was that they were kind of pushing on all fronts and uh, the article I read said that was a kind of a dangerous strategy, if I'm remembering this correctly, but are they interested in taking Addis Ababa or are they content with just controlling their territory and having it as an autonomous region?
1: I think the TPLF yes would like to retake control of the country i I think they would if they could do it they would march to addis and overthrow the government i don't think i'm being melodramatic by saying that Uh, they've done it before again 30 years ago they did it Uh, and i don't think they ever reconciled themselves to losing the place of power and privilege that they had for so long when they dominated the government so yes, I I think they absolutely would march to Addis if they could. I don't think they can do that. The war appears to have mostly ground into a stalemate because now the Tigrayans are facing the same problem that the invade, you know, those who had launched the offensive into Tigray faced. Now the TPLF is fighting on hostile ground in Amhara, in in Afar where they are hated by those local populations. So they're not going to get any sort of support from the locals. And it's going to be very, very difficult to fight their way down to Addis. I also think, even though it was only 30 years ago when uh, they overthrew the Derg regime, we just live in a different era now, where a rebel movement overthrowing a democratically elected, I, I hesitate to use that word, we can get into the recent elections in Ethiopia, but there, you know, there, there are elements of democracy, let me say, in, in Ethiopia um, that the international community just looks very dimly at that sort of thing. Now, uh, it was it was quite different when, again, 30 years ago and particularly because the, the Tigrayans, uh, along with the Eritreans, actually, uh, this is how Eritrea got its independence were fighting to overthrow a very vicious Marxist regime that had brought extraordinary uh, pain and suffering to its own people. So I, I, I think you would see the international community really ratchet up pressure on the TPLF if it keeps pushing south. So I, I don't foresee it being able to get to Addis. I think this is grinding into a stalemate. I think neither side right now is, is ready or willing to negotiate in good faith on this. Uh, I think there's a host of reasons for that, but primarily it's because each side sees this as an existential struggle. Each side believes they have to win in order to survive. And that means that they are going, there's it's, they're going to do whatever it takes uh, to, to secure their interests. So, I think we're at, as I said, somewhat of a stalemate here. I don't see it breaking, uh, at least in the, in the near term. This may be one of those terrible situations where both sides have to fight themselves to exhaustion. And finally, that will force them to start negotiating.
0: When I first heard about this conflict, it was through uh, articles talking about human rights atrocities being committed against the Tigrayan people. But I also understand that there are atrocities being committed on both sides. So, like, who's doing what in this war?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever I talk about this, I say there are no good guys uh, on either side of this. Now, of, of course, there are good people even fighting on both sides of this, but what I mean is both sides have, yes, committed terrible atrocities. Neither side is blameless. Obviously, Partisans for both sides engage in the blame game. Uh, I think, again, all sides, um, I wouldn't even say it's two sided because there are other, you know, the Eritreans, the Amhara, and, and others are involved in this and are fighting for their own equities. So it's, I would say, all sides are to blame. Uh, initially, I was so critical of this war because. There's no doubt that the TPLF engaged in abhorrent behavior. They attacked Northern Command, which is a a federal base, federal military base in Tigray. There's no excuse for that. The Tigrayans will say, well, forces were massing on our border. This was a preemptive strike. We had to do this to protect ourselves. It does seem like forces were beginning to gather on their borders and that an offensive was coming. I still don't think that justifies a an, an attack like this on the uh, legitimate military force of a legitimate government. So, I don't accept that excuse from the Tigrayans. However, while the federal government in Addis may have been justified in taking and I think was justified in taking very strong action against the Tigrayans, there's no excuse for the way they waged the war. This very quickly, it became obvious that this was a war of punishment against the Tigrayan people. The reports that trickled out, as I mentioned, there was a a communications blackout, so we only had very patchy information, but it was appalling what we started to learn. There were summary executions, mass rapes, Uh, pillaging of hospitals, like specifically targeting critical infrastructure like hospitals, uh, pillaging villages. The Eritreans, especially, I think, were, were responsible for a lot of this. And there was even ethnic cleansing in the west of Tigray. I referenced earlier that the Amhara annexed western Tigray. They would say it's theirs historically and that the Tigrayans took it from them when the Tigrayans were in power. There's truth to that. But again, these these claims and counterclaims can go way, way back, and eventually you just have to say someone has to break this cycle. So there was ethnic cleansing when the Amhara took Western Tigray. So it was it was appalling what was happening, and and the world condemned what was going on in Tigray. Now, simply because the Tigrayan people were being victimized does not make the TPLF an innocent actor or a. Uh, an actor led by any apparent conscience. The TPLF, as, uh, as it has moved beyond its borders, and even before, there were some credible reports of TPLF fighters committing atrocities in Tigray state uh, against Amhara and other ethnicities that they found, but especially Amhara, because as, as with most places, uh, even within an ethnic state like Tigray, there, there's other ethnicities present there. So particularly, though, as they've, as they've gone outside their borders of Tigray, reports are coming out of atrocities that the TPLF are now committing. This is totally predictable. This, this country was badly fissured along ethnic lines and has been for many decades. When you allow armed forces like the Amhara militias into Tigray, you are going to get atrocities. When you allow The Eritrean military, which hates the Tigrayan people and the TPLF, into Tigray, you are going to get atrocities. And then, when that situation begins to reverse and the Tigrayans um, head into Amhara, you're going to get atrocities. This is one reason why I am critical, so critical of the Ethiopian government, because I mentioned the TPLF is not at all innocent in the beginning of this, in, in what happened with the beginning of this war. But I don't see any indication that the federal government, including the prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, made every effort to avoid this sort of war. Because this is, anyone could have predicted, many people did, that this would be a catastrophe if a war like this started out, or began, an an ethnic-based war in a country that is divided by ethnicity. So... Of course, you're going to see horrible human rights violations. That's exactly what we've seen. I expect more of them, unfortunately. That is the nature of these conflicts. And it is, again, another reason why the federal government, as the final authority uh, in Ethiopia, which means it has final responsibility for what happens inside that country, should have avoided at all costs this sort of war breaking out. Now, maybe it was impossible. Maybe the TPLF was going to provoke a war no matter what. I think that's, that's possible. But again, it was incumbent on the federal government to do everything it could to avoid this sort of war. It didn't. Atrocities on both sides. As I said, I expect those to continue. I expect this war to continue for the foreseeable future. And it's a disaster for Ethiopia uh, and for the broader region.
0: And talking about the you know this disaster in Ethiopia, like not that long ago, a lot of people were looking to Ethiopia as a darling. Like, we had a uh, South African writer for us, uh, t- right in 2016 about um, how lauding the country's economic growth and suggesting that it could be a model for the continent. Um, he also, you know, wrote about how. Addis Ababa could be compared to Shanghai in 1987 and that he was comparing the country in general to Taiwan and South Korea. and then in 2017 we ran another article talking about how Ethiopia could be a bulwark against chaos from North Africa. Now that's kind of ironic now because a lot of things have changed in Sudan since that article's been written um but and then also Prime Minister Ahmed was uh, received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. so I mean there's a huge, Shift in what's been going on in Ethiopia. So, uh, like, what's Ethiopia's future now and what role does it play in the region? <sighs>
1: um, yeah, there, there was a lot of optimism and hope around Ethiopia. I shared that when Prime Minister Abiy came to power in 2018. Uh, it really was an unprecedented opportunity for Ethiopia to begin building democracy there. Ethiopia's never been a democracy. It was um, uh, it was led by a long line of emperors. Uh, Emperor Haile Selassie was the last one. He was deposed, as, as I referenced earlier, by this Marxist Derg regime uh, coup. And uh, so obviously that was a dictatorship. Then it was, the Derg was eventually overthrown by the TPLF and the Eritreans. TPLF took power. Uh, they thoroughly dominated that government. It was an authoritarian system. Uh, in 2018, these huge popular protests forced the TPLF to relinquish power to Abiy. And Abiy has always been, uh, as all, as everyone is, including especially perhaps political leaders, is a complex guy. It's difficult to suss out all of his motivations and his beliefs. There were but he did appear to be an inspirational leader, so much so that, as you reference, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And initially, he took a lot of positive measures. He made peace with Eritrea. They had had uh, the shooting war that they had had in beginning in 1998 had ended, but they had had this um, sort of frozen conflict for decades. And he ended that, he, he made peace with the Eritreans, which was wonderful. He released political prisoners um, that, le- some of whom had languished for many decades in these prisons, which uh, I have heard firsthand testimony were absolutely brutal. I used to interview uh, Ethiopian refugees and many of them had spent time in some of these prisons and the torture they underwent and other abuse was horrifying to hear. So he did these really positive things. But he also, the, the unrest and the problems continued. So the large-scale protests continued, the popular protests, particularly among the Oromo people, uh, continued. And the security services responded very brutally to those. They responded just as they did under the previous TPLF-led regime. So there were political arrests, including of prominent Aromo politicians. Uh, just just uh, recently, the Aromo people celebrated their version of, of sort of Thanksgiving, and it turned into a massive protest demanding the release of some of these Aromo leaders. Jawar Mohammed is is the most famous one, but there are others. Um, so there are these really concerning signs that Abi was either adopting some of the same tactics that the dictatorial authoritarian uh, his authoritarian predecessors used or he was allowing them to happen or he wasn't able to stop them any of those scenarios was concerning and they also used internet blackouts and and other things that really came out of the playbook of the previous regime so there's all these concerning signs and then this war um, I think was the final disillusionment around Abi, and was perhaps the nail in the coffin of optimism um, that Ethiopia could become a truly democratic country. You know, you, you never want to make predictions. I always say the quickest way to look stupid is to make predictions. Um, so perhaps... Ethiopia can fight its way to to a democracy here uh, under Abiy's leadership, but the signs do not look good at all. So I think a lot of that optimism has turned to deep concern and pessimism. And again, this is is tragic because Ethiopia is a critical country. It's the second most populous country in all of Africa. Uh, Before the pandemic, it may have been the fastest growing economy in the world. So it's a huge economic prize. Uh, It's a linchpin in a very fragile region. It's in East Africa. It is a uh, long-running counterterrorism partner with the United States. So it has troops in Somalia, for instance, fighting as part of an international force against the Islamist terrorist organization there, Al-Shabaab. So this is a really, really important country. And the U.S. was rightfully delighted that there was an opportunity here. Uh, to see Ethiopia embrace democracy and and build an inclusive and representative government, uh, that those hopes uh, appear to be foundering uh, on the rocks of the Tigrayan conflict. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic here about the trajectory.
0: My final question here is, The country isn't strategically important in the way that, you know, Iraq or some of these other places might be. And so it seems doubtful that the Biden administration will do much, especially militarily. And but what can or will the United States do now in Ethiopia?
1: Yeah, so this is one of those deeply thorny problems that pop up in foreign policy frequently. Uh, you're right. E- Ethiopia is not as strategically important as a place like Iraq or even Afghanistan. Um, so any suggestion of U.S. military involvement, and you see these conspiracy theories trickle around sometimes, uh, is is ludicrous, right? Like uh, no one is contemplating that. No one should be contemplating that. What the U.S. has done, uh, it has initially in the initial stages it was fairly supportive of the Tigrayan operation. But then once all of these reports of atrocities began coming out, the tone changed very quickly. There was a lot of condemnations from the United States. And I should say that the rest of the international community has basically been in lockstep with the U.S. on this. Like it's, it's a pretty broad consensus on, on this war. There, there's some, you know, China, of course, will, uh, to protect its its economic interests, and others will always happily support any terrible regime that comes along. But most of the international community uh, has sort of followed this trajectory that the U.S. has. Uh, the U.S. has imposed visa, re- uh, visa travel restrictions on uh, people on both sides of the conflict. They've levied sanctions. They have sent um, the special envoys named uh, Jeff Feltman, uh, special envoy for the um, over there to uh, frequently uh, a number of discussions with the Ethiopians and others. Uh, congressmen have gone over. So Senator Chris Coons, especially um, Biden tapped him to go over there and, and talk with, with Abiy and, and other players um, and the U.S. has made it clear that more punishment for Addis and, and the TPLF, anyone involved in atrocities, uh, is, will be coming unless there's a quick and dramatic change. My, my concern here is that I, I, I just laid out why Ethiopia is so important in, in the Horn. And I've also mentioned earlier that both sides of this conflict see it as existential. That means there's really not much the U.S. can do to shift behavior during this conflict right now because our means, we have potent means, sanctions are very powerful, other measures we can use are very powerful. But when they run up against red line issues for politicians or governments or countries, those means can still bring pain, but they can't cause change because you're, you're dealing with a red line issue, an existential issue. I, th- I think that's the situation we're facing here in Ethiopia. So the balance that the U.S. needs to strike is to, yes, express its horror and its indignation about what is going on as far as the human rights violations are concerned in, during this conflict. But it also needs to speak temperately, I would say, and uh, especially to the federal government in, in Addis. It needs to maintain those lines of communication. It cannot afford to totally alienate Ethiopia. That would be a disaster for American interests. So it needs to find this balance between, as I said, some of these punitive measures, but also offering carrots and inducements to to Addis Ababa, and also just acknowledging their real grievances um, and the wrongdoing by the TPLF. So it's a really hard balance to find, but that's the nature of foreign policy, right? And uh, that's what our diplomats exist for, is to strike these delicate balances. Uh, we'll see how, how the Biden administration does on this. I, I'm not totally positive so far. Again, I think plenty of the measures have been appropriate. I'm glad that they've been engaged as, as heavily as they have been. But engagement alone is not success. Uh, you actually have to have results <laughs> to, to achieve success. So you can have all the engagement in the world you want. But if it doesn't achieve results, then what's the point? And we haven't seen any results at all in Ethiopia yet. And I worry that this path of just figuring out larger and larger and heavier and heavier anvils to drop on the uh, federal government in Addis is actually going to make it harder to achieve results, um, to, to push for a negotiated settlement. We'll see. Again, this is, this is very, very difficult. This is what, what diplomats exist for, as I said earlier. And this is the balance that the Biden administration needs to find. I think we're a little bit on autopilot right now where we sort of have this playbook that we roll out every time we face one of these situations. And it's like, okay, here are the sanctions, here are the visa restrictions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But each conflict and each situation is really different. And the American interests that are involved are very different. So we need creative thinking here. And uh, we can't just use the same blueprint that we use everywhere else and expect it to be particularly effective. It's a long, tough road ahead. Uh, I, I mostly you know, mourn for the Ethiopian people themselves. Ethiopia is one of my favorite African countries. I've been fortunate enough to spend months there. Uh, it's, it's the most interesting African country, I would say. It's hugely important. Uh, and this has just been a disaster. As I said earlier, I think US means are limited in what we can accomplish. We need to do what we can to to push for a negotiated settlement but we have to maintain a working relationship with Addis Ababa just for for our own sakes.
0: Well, Josh, thank you for joining us on the Provcast. And here's to hoping that we have creative solutions in our foreign policy.
1: I, I would agree with that. Thanks so much for having me.